This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Those opposite are all smear and no idea. I again ask, how on earth was that phone call appropriate? A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Welcome to the party room. I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvelis from RN Drive. Fran, wow, we're nearly at the end of the second last sitting week of the year and it's been a bit of a doozy. Some huge issues have come up this week. Yeah, every one of these weeks has been precious. I think we've only had 13, so sort of nice work if you can get it. Um, But these last two weeks do matter to the government because there's a couple of major bills they really want to get done before the year is out, which would cap off their year nicely, a year when they came into it expecting not to be in government for the back half of the year, and lo and behold, they are. I think you could call these bills totemic, PK. I'm talking the Ensuring Integrity Bill, a.k.a. the Union Busting Bill, and the Medivac Bill. Yeah, they're the huge ones. Now, let's just recap on where they are at. And we're recording this on a Thursday morning with Medivac. Of course, just the history on this, the government's uh, promised, even at the election, it wants to repeal the Medivac legislation that only ever passed, allowing essentially uh, doctors to sign off on people being brought to Australia from offshore detention to get medical attention. There is ministerial oversight, but, you know, it's kind of more complex Mm. than that. They want to repeal it. They need Jackie Lambie's vote. It's key. Everyone's been waiting for Jackie Lambie to, you know, reveal what she'll do, that she is the most lobbied person in Australia, I feel, on this one issue. And she put out a statement and said that she's prepared to repeal Medivac but on one condition and Fran... She won't tell us the condition. So no, recording this Thursday morning, we're getting a lot of speculation and reportage of what that might be. She's put out a tweet saying, only I know, only the Prime Minister's office knows, only Peter Dutton knows, not prepared to say it because of national security concerns. Uh, we might know it by the time people listen to this podcast. Uh, I hope we know it because I think in the interests of transparency, people should find out exactly what this condition is. But it might be a big thing, right, Fran? Presumably it is. I mean, it was pretty funny. The statement came out and she said, in light of, you know, considerable community interest, I wish to outline my final position on the bill. And then she didn't really give us her final position on the bill because there's a condition at the heart of it. But the thing she did say in this press release was that she supports the government's position on Operation Sovereign Borders. But then she said, I do not believe this position is undermined by the presence of Medivac. So you thought, okay, she's not going to support the government getting rid of Medivac. But then she says she's proposed this secret condition, which she won't tell anybody. Allegedly, it's about national security. So what we do know is that Jackie Lambie has been talking uh, around to people about, you know, some kind of mechanism to force the government to get the people who are stuck on Manus and Nauru off there. And that's about 500 people now. Um, So, you know, she's very preoccupied with this. And that's brought into play this suggestion that perhaps she's going to insist that the government activate the New Zealand offer. Now, the New Zealand offer is to bring 150 people to New Zealand, people have been qualified, judged as refugees to New Zealand. So the government so far has said, well, we'll only do that if the New Zealand accepts that those people are never, ever going to come to Australia. New Zealand said no to that because that would make a two-tier visa system. So we don't know the condition that Jackie Lambie has put on this. It may be something around New Zealand. I suggest that won't really satisfy the government and it won't really necessarily satisfy New Zealand. Um, so we 
we are yet to wait and see, but the issue is Jackie Lambie is ready to do a deal with the government. The government wants Medivac, I, I suspect, not just because it's always said that Medivac undermines its sovereignty, undermines its border protection policy, but also because it was a hell of an embarrassment for the government at the very end of last year, remember, when oh, the yeah. government was in, um, did not have a majority in the parliament and the forces of the um, opposition and the crossbench joined to defeat the government. That was a great embarrassment. It infuriated the government. They just want to get it back, really, to prove that they're in control. Oh, it's absolutely, uh, you know, <laughs> entrenched in politics, essentially, because that lack of control is really at the centre of the concern, but also they claim that they're also concerned about, you know, Operation Sovereign Borders and the and the broader border security um, measures and how this makes this vulnerable. That's the argument they've been making. Look, the other thing on that is she's made it quite clear, Fran, just on that condition, in that statement, that if the condition is not met, she'll just oppose the repeal of Medivac. Yeah. Like, she's pretty clear-cut about that. So, as you say, if it is something like New Zealand and the government won't take it, it seems that she's not up for negotiating on yeah, anything else. Yeah. So yeah. the stakes are high for the government who really want this. Um, but the government's going to have a win, it seems, this week almost certainly on the Ensuring Integrity Bill. That's the other bill that puts a whole lot of um, strict penalties uh, in controls over union and union behaviour. Yeah, commonly known as the union-busting bill. Exactly. And it does look as though the government's been dealing with Central Alliance. We know that. And Pauline Hanson has taken their amendments on board and therefore they don't need Jackie Lambie for that. Jackie Lambie famously said she would vote for that bill if John Setka doesn't step aside from his union. Now, he's still there, of course. So the government's saying, OK, Jackie, you said that, now you deliver... But it does look as though she's going to be dealt out of that negotiation and the government will get that through. Yeah, they're trying to get the vote up on ensuring integrity for Thursday. And as we're saying, we're recording this Thursday morning, so that vote might be done and dusted. And, of course, we'll have a strong response from Labor and the union movement if it does pass, even with all of those amendments, because they have been steadfast against this. Uh, Labor has made it quite clear now that, you know, essentially if they are to be re-elected, they may even repeal, of course, because this is... This is one thing. I mean, they've capitulated or agreed with the government on certain other things that they have been opposed to and they've been criticised. But on this issue, on ensuring integrity, on this union bill, they have been united and very much opposed to it. So these are the bills the government's trying to get through. But there's, uh, you know, other business that has to be done. The government kicked off this week with a spending announcement, over $500 million um, in its response to the Aged Care Royal Commission, the draft recommendations. Remember, they were handed down a few weeks ago. It was a scathing scathing report of the state of our aged care um, homes, our residential aged care system and our home aged care system. And it called the government to act immediately, not wait for the final report in a year's time, on four recommendations. And the government uh, has decided that it will respond to that. We knew it would. The PM said he was going to do it before the end of the year. He decided to kick off this week on the front foot. Uh, And I thought the PM's remarks here, PK, were particularly thoughtful. I know quite precisely the sorts of things that you are thinking about at the moment when it comes to the treatment of your loved ones in aged care. My family is no different to yours in that respect. And so I have a very deep understanding of the difficult decisions that you're having to make, the conversations you're having to have with the partners, husbands, wives of those loved ones going into care, other siblings. This is hard and you just want to be assured that they're going to get the care. I want that as much for your family as I want it for mine. And I want the response of our government to have that same level of deep care and responsibility. 
As I say, I thought there was a powerful um, mechanism to use. I'm standing here in your shoes and equating him to the universal experience. The government's response of half a billion dollars or just over is really a drop in the ocean to the long-term needs to fix this sector, and that's a, that will come in a year's time. How, how are we going to manage that as a nation? Um, but I think one of the conditions it's worth singling out here is the government has put a specific deadline on getting all the young people, these are people under 45, with disabilities who are in aged care for a lack of other places to put them out of aged residential care and finding appropriate housing solutions for them. So that'll be specialist disability accommodation, supported in independent living. These are not easy solutions to find. The government's putting some money in, presumably to create some more, and I think that's one of the key take-homes. I think so, but watch this space because they're going to need to do a whole lot more, Fran. This, oh, yeah. This sector oh, yeah. needs massive levels of reform, massive levels of investment. And if you talk to anybody in at the highest levels of government, they'll tell you that. They'll say, we know that this is the time bomb. We know that this is going to have a massive impact on the budget. So when they're concerned about delivering the surplus, when they're concerned and pressure's been put on them on stimulus and all those other issues... They are very aware of the fact that this aged care issue is where they have to invest a lot more Mm. money. So watch that space because this is not the end of that story. Absolutely not. But Fran, while all of those huge issues are going on, and there are others too, even robo-debt, that was a significant court. Yeah, there was a significant court ruling that uh, essentially the federal government lost a significant legal challenge to robo-debt, the federal court ruling that the debt was unlawful. So that was another huge thing this week too. There are so many things for us to mention. But really the biggest one politically that dominated and has dogged the government this week is Energy and Emissions Minister Angus Taylor and the New South Wales Police deciding to investigate what his office did in relation to that document, which inflated numbers in relation to the City of Sydney and its travel to kind of try and embarrass the City of Sydney on its emissions. And essentially it was given to the Daily Telegraph. Now there's a police investigation. And now there are huge questions and controversy around how the Prime Minister has handled this issue. Yeah, and there's a lot, a lot of threads to this, as you say. There's not just this police task force that's been set up and the whole notion of what actually happened with those figures and the metadata and all of that. But as you say, the politics around this now engulfing the Prime Minister, I think that's a perfect way to start our discussion with our party room guest this morning, don't you? Let's do it. David Crowe is the Chief Political Correspondent with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. David, welcome to the party room and congratulations. You are the 2019 European Union Qantas Journalist Award winner. Fantastic. Well done. Thank you so much. And I've got to say, when I hear that music, I always feel so relaxed at the end of a sitting week. Thank <laughs> you. We are the sort of women who like people to feel relaxed and comfortable, <laughs> and then we slam them. All right, uh, David, what a week, right? I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, Fran, the way that this Angus Taylor issue has unfolded? Oh, yeah. Look, it's got its own hashtag, hashtag Angusgate. I love that. You, I just love the way that we do that in politics now, political reporting. Angusgate, David, um, was heading one way at the start of the week, and then all of a sudden it's which direction, and somehow the Prime Minister ended up at the centre of it. Let's have a listen. I take matters of ministerial standards very seriously. I have since spoken with the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller, about uh, the instigation, the nature and substance of their inquiries, which he advised me were based only on the allegations referred by the Shadow Attorney-General, 
And based on the information provided to me by the Commissioner, I consider there is no action required by me under clauses 7 stop members 1 on my left. and 7 stop 2. The New South Wales Police should now be left to complete their inquiries, which will be considered upon their completion. And that was quite an incredible moment. We were waiting, of course, question time. It happened just an hour and a half before. And the Prime Minister actually found out. I was there, David, you know, I was there on Tuesday watching Mm -hmm. question time. The Prime Minister clearly found out about the fact that the New South Wales Police were now investigating this. During question time, he had not been informed. So you saw him looking at his phone, getting a briefing, and then he made this promise that he would go and speak to the New South Wales police. And when that dropped, I think a few eyebrows in the press gallery, as we were all sitting there, kind of got raised, like, oh, that seems unusual. But still, the the sort of where this would go didn't quite hit home like it did. Then he came and made this statement to the House of Representatives. There was speculation, will he dump or stand aside his minister? Instead, he said, yep, I spoke to the police commissioner and I think, you know, it's fine for him to stay. And since there's been an attack on Scott Morrison for this phone call, he's been accused of making this unprecedented phone call to the police commissioner, who also, can I say, happens to be his former neighbour. There's something about bins and them being pulled (laughs) in and helping out a neighbour, and that's fine. People should help out neighbours. But now it's become this story about a cosy relationship. It's really been a difficult one for the government to handle, David. What's your analysis? I mean, you've written a doozy of a column, so I kind of have a hint about what you (laughs) think. How do you think this is playing out? Well, that moment when Scott Morrison went into the chamber and said, I've had this phone conversation, this is what we talked about, this is my judgment. That changed everything because up until then, this was all a question about Angus Taylor and his judgment in sending a letter with fake information to Clover Moore, the Mayor of Sydney. Scott Morrison turned it into a question about his judgment because he chose to call the New South Wales Police Commissioner. And in that statement to the Parliament, he said we talked about the substance of the investigation. Now, of course, the spin has been that this was just a call to verify that there was a police investigation going on and then that would guide the Prime Minister and how he would treat this matter. But the Prime Minister's own words were that he talked about the substance. And I think it's been very interesting that even though it took time to digest the full implications of what Scott Morrison had done. But over time, it's become clear that people with good expertise in this field think that it was just the wrong thing to do. And I'm not talking about the Labor accusation. I'm talking about the fact that we now have in the Herald and The Age, we've got a former counsel assisting the New South Wales ICAC, Geoffrey Watson, saying he should not have made that phone call. The Guardian is, is reporting a former ICAC commissioner in New South Wales, David Ipp, former judge, saying... Scott Morrison should not have made that call. So okay, so, it's not so just let's a... talk about that, though. For people listening, what's wrong with that? Because it's not really a, a formal separation of powers issue, is it? He's a New South Wales police commissioner. This is a, a federal prime minister. There's no direct line of authority. So what's there's nothing illegal uh, that's been made clear by those analysts you've ta- those commentators you've talked about. So what's yes. the issue here? Not appropriate is the words. Um, It could be seen to be asking a favour. There's no clarity about what the contents of the phone call were, what was said on either side. Of course, we have statements from both Scott Morrison and from the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller. But still, you've got a situation where, according to Geoffrey Watson, when I spoke to him, it could be seen that the Prime Minister was seeking a favour or seeking some influence there. And so, therefore, that's not appropriate. As Malcolm Turnbull said... 
you know, the phone call could... Well, Turnbull's judgment was that the phone call was innocuous, but he would not have made it because it wasn't appropriate. So obviously there is the perception issue, not just the substance of the call. That is really the issue that Scott Morrison has to deal with, this judgment from experts in the field. You mentioned Turnbull there. Why don't we just hear Malcolm Turnbull? He's been out and about a bit recently uh, in the last week or so on a number of issues. Let's hear him asked about this on Sky because on the one hand it struck me he was trying not to cause trouble for Scott Morrison, but of course he did. I'm sure the call that the Prime Minister made to the New South Wales Police Commissioner was innocuous, but uh, it would have been much better had it not been made, because it's really, it is vitally important that that inquiry that is being conducted by the New South Wales Police, like every inquiry they undertake, is seen to be conducted entirely free of political influence. And so, being blunt about it, it's a call that I would not have made. Oh, boom. <laughs> that was the mic drop. It's a call I would not have made. Uh, he just happens to be the guy who was the Prime Minister before the current guy. So there you go, read between the lines. I mean, it was... That intervention, I think, also, not only just these independent judges that you mentioned, David, but the fact that even the former Prime Minister said this made it a lot more difficult for Scott Morrison as well. And now the political pressure is all on release the transcript. I feel like we're in US politics. It's sort of transcript wars now, you know, what's the transcript say? And Labor and even Rex Patrick, who I interviewed on RN Driver, putting pressure on uh, the government to release any transcript or any notes of this conversation. Would there know, what be was notes? Said. Would there be notes, no, I don't. Well, I think according to Mick Fuller's remarks when journalists were asking him about this uh, on Wednesday, Scott Morrison tried to call him on his mobile a couple of times. He didn't take the call because he didn't recognise the number. So <laughs> it looks like a very casual phone call, not something where there was another staff member in on the call to take notes or do a transcript. And so that's another aspect that raises a question. In my view, the call didn't need to be made to the New South Wales Police Commissioner. It could have been made to somebody else in the New South Wales Police and it should have been made by the bureaucrat who usually oversees questions about ministerial standards and that's the head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. That person could have easily verified that there was an investigation, checked out what the timeframes might have been, advised the Prime Minister on that and then Scott Morrison probably would have made exactly the same decision, which was to stand by Angus Taylor. So, uh, David, but I think I, it's that arm's length approach that would have been better. So again, for people listening, why did the Prime Minister do it? I mean, I assume a, he didn't want to take the... He'd only just found out, I think you said, PK, that this was yeah. there was a strike force and he wanted to confirm it. But was he also mm. trying to check out that before he kept standing behind Angus Taylor um, that he wasn't going to step into a bucket of poo or something? What was he trying Poss to do here? Bucket of poo, I like I it. I guess so, but that's all a matter of speculation, isn't it? Because we can't really be sure. His stated assertion to the parliament was, look, on Tuesday you asked me about this, you wanted me to take steps about Angus Taylor. I told you I was going to check with the New South Wales Police and I did that. I did what I told the Parliament I was going to do. And Scott Morrison had a point. When he told Parliament he was going to call the New South Wales Police, nobody on the Labor side said, how dare you? This is outrageous. Let's call a point of order. No, you know, he didn't get that response. It was only late. And this is why it took some time for it to sink in and then get these opinions from people in the world of um, corruption commissions and so forth about probity. 
But that was his stated reason. I didn't think that that reason was terribly strong. His, his argument was, I told you I was going to do it and I did it. What's the problem? Mm. You know, as we all know, I mean, just telling somebody that you're going to do something does not necessarily justify that course of action. Now, you're right about Labor not knowing quite where to go on this until the next day when journalists were the ones saying, hang on a minute, we think something's Mm. a little unusual here. And then Labor got excited and went down this road. I mean, I interviewed the shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, on the night this story first broke, on the Tuesday night, live in, you know, Parliament House. and, And he... I put it to him, do you think it's appropriate? He did say, to be fair to him, it doesn't seem right to me, but I'm not sure, he said. I'm not sure what the precedent is. I just don't know. Yeah. I'm not, you know but, but I was the same. I, I, I didn't rush into print straight after Scott Morrison went to Parliament on the Tuesday afternoon. I thought, well, look, let's see how this goes in question time on Wednesday and, and what the stakes are here. And I, I was really waiting on a, a few other judgments and opinions about the matter before I before I actually wrote an analysis about it. I, I was I was also hesitant to sort of cast judgment too quickly on it. Yeah, and so this will unfold. We're recording this Thursday morning throughout Thursday and yeah, I think it's unlikely the government's going to provide anything. I think they're just going to hold out on this one. It's interesting though, because you know, we've got ensuring integrity, we've talked about Medivac already, Fran and I together, but there's another huge story that I think we have to talk about because it's sort of the biggest story of the year or of our times, those foreign interference laws. It was actually Malcolm Turnbull that brought them in, but, you know, Scott Morrison was in the government, of course, he was in the cabinet. There's been a couple of stories, hasn't there now, David, that have broken about uh, Chinese interference and there's been a lot of pressure on the government on, on these laws, on donation laws in the wake of these stories. And actually they've been published by the same publisher that, uh, of course, publishes you. Yes, that's well... Uh, my colleagues who've been digging around, Nick McKenzie in particular in Melbourne, who've been digging around suspect um, Chinese um, intelligence operatives uh, and also uh, somebody who's basically fleeing China and claiming asylum here as a former espionage officer, raises all these questions about the way in which the Chinese Communist Party seeks to influence politics in Australia. There's still a lot to be uh, uncovered, I think, in that sphere. The government's response has been to be fairly cautious in in the way it's responding. And look, to be honest, it can't be sure of all the facts on these cases. And so therefore, it is probably wise to be cautious in its uh, response. But it was very telling that after the revelations by Nick McKenzie, there was a statement from the head of ASIO, Mike Burgess, that confirmed that they were aware of these claims and that they were looking into them. And so therefore we do have a real situation here where there's uh, been some suspect activity that the authorities have got to look into and it doesn't make it easy when Scott Morrison already has tensions with the Chinese government. And it happened in the week too. We had the Peter Harcher essay quoting David Irvine, the former head of ASIO, saying that um, oh, something like, this is not a direct quote, but you know, China is trying to take over our parliament, basically. So that sort of mm. um, dovetailed nicely there. And then there was another quote too that didn't get so much airplay from Dennis Richardson, another former head of ASIO, who was making the point, though, in terms of the tone of the debate of China, we do need to be careful. And it is um, basically ridiculous in his view when we quote you know, stories of senior Chinese businessmen in Australia doing deals with businesses in China that have links 
to the Chinese Communist Party because, as he points out, you can't do anything in China without being a member of the Chinese Communist Party. That is just the way people are raised. They're raised there at school. You know, businesses have chapters of the Communist Party there. Um, so that's just a sort of a, a nonsense to raise that as a boogeyman, in a sense, and we're doing, doing a disservice to senior Chinese business people here in Australia when we do that. So he was concerned to try and get some a modicum of sensibleness, I suppose, into the debate as well. I think that is the right approach. The, the story is about Wang Lechang, who's seeking to asylum in Australia. I mean, that's a very big story. The story about Bo Zhao, who was found dead in a motel room in, in Melbourne and told people that he'd been offered money to run for parliament, offered money by somebody with apparent links to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, they're all major stories but they all need to be taken cautiously because it doesn't mean that every Chinese business in Australia is suspect. It does become very difficult to deal with because all companies are traced back uh, sooner or later to the government because so many state-owned enterprises operate in that sphere. And I find it fascinating that we're really struggling with China, what I call China Inc., because as we see with so many decisions, there are decisions by Chinese officials that might favour one company or the other, and then there are private Chinese companies that could benefit from that. Mm. Uh, and you know, differentiating between the state and the company is a very, very difficult thing sometimes. Absolutely. And the uh, government of China, and Xi Jinping, in the last four years particularly, have really become much more muscular, not just externally, but I think internally too. And that's why it's hard to work out how free these businesses are to operate and how much. I mean, because they are answerable, ultimately, if the government so deems to the government. So it's complicated. Yeah. And there's, there's strong feelings among parliamentarians on all sides. I think it's interesting that it's not really party political. There are members of the Labor Party who are very sceptical about China. I know that Labor's often attacked for being pro-China, given you know the scandal over Sam Dastyari in the past. But it's actually much more complicated than that. There are real concerns about Chinese activity or Communist Party activity within the Labor caucus. And Liberals also have those concerns, most prominently, of course, people like Andrew Hastie and James Patterson, who were refused visas to visit Beijing. So there is this sense that the attitude in Beijing is changing, and that's actually triggering a change in Australia. I think one point that Malcolm Turnbull made when interviewed this week about, well, look, why did you change your, your approach to China? He made the point that actually China under Xi has become more assertive, more aggressive internationally. And that's actually been the big shift in what's happened here. It hasn't been a shift initiated by Australia. It's actually been something initiated by Beijing. Yeah. Now we're struggling to respond and find exactly we, the right place. It's a moving target. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. Hey, David, what a huge week. What a perfect person to uh, help us understand it and help our listeners understand it. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. Thanks. It's time for question time. And I'm always excited when we get audio questions so we can hear your voice. You can always send them to us, email us at the party room. But this one comes from Jessica in my hometown of Melbourne. Hi, Fran and PK. So I wanted to ask you guys if you've watched the recent ABC series, Total Control. I was really interested in some of the little quirks of Parliament House, like there's a fountain that if you want to have a private conversation where no one can overhear you, you stand by it. And it kind of was a bit of a funny idea to me because then anyone seeing you by the fountain knows you're up to something. Um, even some of the details about you can get in a car with someone from a rival party and no one's going to notice. 
I just wondered how much of that is creative licensing and how much politicians can actually sort of get away with without people really noticing in Canberra? Good question, Jessica. I think the answer to that is not much. Is that what you'd say, PK? <laughs> not I much. Certainly, I must say, and, you know, I, I, I love the series, I love Total Control, and I absolutely love and are flabbergasted by the access they've got to Parliament House. But when she got in the car with the opposition leader... I really thought that's never going to happen. That is just not going to happen. So, Jessica, the answer to that is, in my view, that would not happen. And even standing around in the middle of Parliament House with the... What's that, what's okay, that fountain called, so PK? that fountain... I don't remember its name, but that it fountain... It is designed for that. That fountain, though, it's... You see people there. It's the centre. So, no, yes. you don't have private conversations there. And it's not no. because the... She wouldn't be standing with the opposition leader there no, in the middle of Parliament House. because we'd all see. And remember, Parliament House has the press gallery, which is in the Senate wing. Journalists work, walk past there all the time. If you want to have a private conversation, you are not going to have it where there are no. the visuals. But it doesn't really matter because it's also, this is fiction, right? So, of course, yeah. they've used... But a, it is true about that fountain. That's why it was designed to be there, that you actually could... It would drown out some private conversation. That is, as I understood, that's always been my understanding yeah, of that thousand. You know what? It doesn't give you an invisibility cloak, unfortunately. No, so it it's kind of pretty null and void because of that. Look, I've got yeah. a booming voice. Everyone hears everything I say. Um, oh, God, so, yeah. No, yeah. There's Thanks, no fountain. Fran. Thanks, oh, Fran. There's no fountain sorry, that's loud enough, is there? <laughs> That's so true. But I thought that it was just a great series. And look, Fran, I think you and I were both excited to have our voices in that series. Oh, like, yeah, that was I like loved a privilege, it. wasn't it, really? Absolutely it was a so privilege. Good. What I loved about that series, I'm still loving about it, is that, um, I mean, I thought some of the political stuff or stuff was a bit of a cliche in a way. And that's part of that, what we've just been discussing. And that's okay. I don't mind it because it's, you know, it's my world in a way. So I love seeing it. Whereas the Indigenous stuff I thought was not cliched and that was um, such a breath of fresh air. Uh, So I thought the Indigenous characters were very well developed, I I thought. That's what I liked about it too. And I thought the way it handled this issue of deaths in custody Mm. was actually quite profound and given this is a contemporary discussion we're having right now in relation to the death of Kumanjai Walker and that this series was on at the same time as that death in custody essentially and now we're discussing it in fiction uh, in, in this series on the ABC. I just thought that was just the most powerful part of it all and, the, and, and you know, I think discussing the way parties use um, diversity and the way that this Indigenous senator was brought in. I thought this was all really interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, I did So too. it was a great series and, you know, but yeah, of course they just, the creative stuff around it and the way they use Parliament House, at least they got into Parliament House. That was oh, exciting. Oh, yeah, and, and they managed to create that whole cloak and dagger feel around it. So I think that was really great. And you're right, PK, that issue in particular, but there was a number of elements where it crossed over with what is happening politically and in the news. Uh, I just thought it was incredibly timely. Well, the party's over for us for this week. I mean, the party's never over for us. We're always partying, aren't we, Fran? But, you know, it is in terms of this record. We'll be back next week. It is the final sitting week of the year. You can tweet us at the party room because we'd love to get your questions. And there's always the trusty old email where you can send us audio questions too. The email address is thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Remember, rate, review, subscribe. See you, PK. See you, Fran.
Nearly three years in, and despite what he says... There was no collusion. ..the Russia story isn't going away. But for Vladimir Putin, the US election was only part of his plan. A Malaysian Airlines plane has crashed while flying over the eastern region of Ukraine. I've never been to Moscow. I've never met a Russian operative or agent. Russia, if you're listening, has returned for a third season, looking at Putin's grand chess match with the West. Subscribe now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.